The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. Wisdom from the Spirit. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Good morning. It's really good to be with you. Uh, My name's Thomas. I'm one of the elders here. That's my introduction. We've got a lot to get through. Um, uh, No, and... I, I'm not on staff here. I'm, I have the pleasure of being uh, an elder here, um, but not on staff. Uh, I'm, I work at Queen's, working on a PhD that I'm pleading with the Lord will one day end. Um, I think it's going to happen one day. We'll see. We're in this series in, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, uh, the first part of which we've entitled the, perfect, the Imperfect Church because the Corinthians were imperfect. Uh, Paul's letter to the body of Christ in an area where culture was so influential, so, um, so hyped up that it was making its way into the ways of the church. Um, and our point um, of looking here at the, the Corinthians isn't to study their imperfections and think how much better we are, but to recognize the imperfections that we have and, and continually ask God for uh, his transformative work in our lives. And so with that, I say, if you are new to Village, and we're so glad you're here, if you're looking for a perfect church, you are not in the right place. And we are very glad you're here, but we are far from perfect. We are broken. We are messed up. We are doing our best to love Jesus, to love each other, and to love our city. Uh, We're glad you're here. Uh, So the world today we live in, the world we live in today, has more information available than at any other point in human history, to the point where maybe it seems, maybe it's just me, that it feels like we should probably have way more smart people than we might actually have Maybe it's just that we have way more access to all the fools in the world, and that's why it seems the world is a bit nuts. Uh, But the point is this, having lots of knowledge doesn't equal having wisdom. Corinth was a city obsessed with wisdom. It was obsessed with knowledge and education. For the Corinthians, you could elevate yourself to a better place in society by gaining lots of knowledge and wisdom. Philosophy was very highly regarded. Knowledge was power, power, power. Powerful, powerful. 
The more educated you were, the higher the rank you had in society. And the problem was this attitude began to infect the church. The culture of the city around them had slowly become the culture of the church. They had become the very thing that they were meant to be a counter-demonstration of. They were so obsessed with gaining wisdom that Paul mentions it 15 times between 1.17 and 2.13. And this obsession with wisdom had led the church to a very unhealthy place. The people in the church wanted to have wisdom. They wanted to be spiritual. They wanted to be mature. And these are good things to strive for. We can agree on that. But Paul is saying that they're coming from the wrong perspective. They're going at it from what Paul terms as natural wisdom, worldly wisdom. They were consumed with elevating themselves above other less mature people, above the dirty physical worlds. They'd come to think that there were like extra levels of maturity that you could reach secrets of wisdom that they needed to get access to. And, that all, this, uh, and all that this had done was lead them to a point where Paul could refer to them in three, chapter 3, verse 1, as infants in Christ. They were behaving like kids and not in the sense that Jesus asks us to have a childlike faith. They were being childish. The church was in disarray and we need to remember the context that we're reading. Division is rife in the Corinthian church. So when Paul's addressing addressing wisdom and maturity, he's speaking into a a context where the congregations are divided. And as we began today, we began with the word yet. So let's have a quick recap of verses one to five. So Paul recalls his arrival in Corinth uh, with much fear and trembling in verse 3. Such was the reputation of the city and his own sense of vulnerability at all levels. Corinth was mental. It was a wild place. Uh, Later on, uh, to be called a Corinthian was the equivalent of being called a pervert. The place was bonkers. And we'll see that later on whenever Paul addresses some specific issues. This is the kind of place that the, the church had to exist in. Uh, So Paul made made a conscious, deliberate, and determined decision to abandon any natural or worldly wisdom, as he would call it, and to concentrate on what? In verse 1 and 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul's indicating we need nothing more than the cross of Jesus. There's nothing more to add. Okay. The problem was the Corinthian church had forgotten this. So Paul, to remind them, didn't fight fire with fire. He didn't try some interesting new philosophy or psychology. He didn't like suggest seven steps to get mature with gods. Instead, Paul relied on and was in in his own self a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. You see that in verse 4. So that decision... For Paul to like, neglect philosophy and psychology and just depend on this part of the Spirit, that decision ensured that the consequent results on the lives of the transformed Corinthians rested not in the wisdom of men, but where? In verse 5, in the power of God. And then we get to verse 6. So the direction starts to change. After exposing the emptiness of all man-made and man-centered schemes of salvation, after emptying wisdom, human wisdom, of all ultimate value and any consequent attractiveness, the word yet comes in. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So it brings some questions. Questions as to what maturity is. Uh, Questions regarding wisdom. And that's what we'll start with this morning. Um, So before we plow on, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll take it from there. Father, we're so grateful for your words. 
It's a light to our feet. Um, it is a mirror that shows us uh, who, you, who we are, how imperfect and fallen we are. shows us how great and beautiful your grace is. Uh, may our hearts be open to what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, may uh, I decrease and may you increase. Uh, we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So the first question then, how can we know the wisdom of God? Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So previously when Paul was beating up on human wisdom, it's clear that he isn't completely down on wisdom. There is a wisdom that we should seek and speak about. But it's not a wisdom in the sense of just an accumulation of knowledge. This is the wisdom of God that Paul and the other apostles teach to mature believers. But it's not wisdom in a worldly sense. It's godly wisdom. And so what we see is Paul points out how human wisdom, how natural wisdom, is limited by time. Nope, just how it's limited. First one is limited by time. I'll give you a spoiler. So Paul says natural wisdom is limited by time. Look in verse 6. Paul says the wisdom of God is, is not the same as the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, which will eventually no longer exist. In other words, everything we think we know, all, everything that all the powerful rulers of the world know, everything that they control will one day pass away. And we know this to be true, right? Think of all the things humans used to know and used to be sure about. If we jumped back 1,500 years, everybody knew that the earth was the center of the universe. Or maybe if we jump back 500 years ago, everybody knew that the world was flat. The Library of Congress in America has 24 million books, and every year, 200,000 are added. So that's 10 million books in the next 50 years. So in the next 50 years, you'll have a bookshelf of about 34 million books to read. Say you're an ambitious reader, right? And you devour books at a rate that I devour custard creams. For every book you choose to read, you would have to ignore 10,000, okay? Because you just don't have the time. With all that knowledge acquired, it's still limited by time and it will pass and Jesus says this explicitly in Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So I'm, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't explore and use our minds to pursue knowledge. It's good and it's right that we do. I work in a university and pursuing a PhD, which whenever you start off, they talk about how you're adding to the body of knowledge, which makes it sound way more grand. It's not that exciting at all. It's way more dull. Um, but we need to realize that time limits our ability to know it will pass, but the Lord's words will remain forever. So the second way human wisdom is limited is by our senses. First our time and then by our senses. Look at verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says this to show that some things are just simply out of reach for human senses. Our eyes, our brains are perfectly designed, given by God so that we can explore and interpret the world around us. But the truth is there's more reality than the natural world. And you'd look pretty daft if you disagreed. Think of gravity. Think of air. 
C.S. Lewis talks about the stages, uh, the different uh, arenas of life. You think of the natural life, plants, vegetation, and they've got one stimuli they respond to, and that's the sun. Above that is biological life. Animals have more senses, have five senses, have greater range of stimuli, but human life, we have, in the words of Ecclesiastes, eternity set in our hearts, and that's by God's. We have an eternal or spiritual perception. There's something more there's more going on than meets the eye. In the Maclay Library at Queen's, there's a C.S. Lewis reading room, and, uh, and a typed around the walls is a quote from Mere Christianity you might be familiar with. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. And Paul is saying here that the understanding of the world can give us a certain amount of limited awareness, but only God can produce a supernatural spiritual work in the human heart. And this is a secret and hidden wisdom of God, and it's nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word here is, is mystery. It's, it means something that's, that's hidden, something to be discovered, like a buried treasure. Jesus is this buried treasure. He is the fulfillment of this wisdom of God. Verse 8 is remarkable, and it builds on what Lucas was teaching last week. God decreed before the ages. So, so what we're seeing is God has always had a plan to redeem his people, and it's always been Jesus. Paul is saying that in his wisdom, God decided on Jesus Christ and him crucified as the way of salvation long before time and space began, long before he created us in his own image. And even more than that, God planned from eternity to bring all his saints to share in that glory. That's remarkable. And this wisdom has been hidden for generations, but is now revealed in Jesus Christ but it remains hidden to those who still rely on human wisdom. Human understanding is an incredible gift, but it's not comprehensive. If, if it was comprehensive, if human wisdom was enough, one of the greatest governments of all time wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory if they had a perception of who he was, but they didn't. So it's limited, our human understanding is limited by time, it's limited by senses, and thirdly, it's limited by access. So what I mean by this is that in our natural state, outside of Jesus, we don't have a relationship with God, and so we don't have access to him. Look at verse 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So Paul's saying here that you can never really know what someone is thinking. You can only know what yourself, you can only know what you yourself are thinking. Sure, you know yourself. And it's the same with God's. Our ability to know him is limited by our ability to know anybody outside of ourselves. So I can read an autobiography, but I can only know about an individual to the degree at which they are candid so the best way, and this isn't big news, we know this, the best way to know someone is through relationship. If I had never met my wife, Laura, and somebody gave me her CV or a book about her life, I could read that and know a lot about her. But there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. 
There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And the key is relationship. I can confidently say I know my wife, Laura, because I have relationship with her. I have intimacy with her. I know more than just a list of facts about her. I know how she thinks. I know how she feels about things, how she's going to react about things. I know that if one of you were to trip on your way up to taking communion this morning, she would laugh. That's just the way she is. I know her. Then she'd feel really bad for you. It's okay. She's not a terrible person. I know these things because I love her. Jonathan Edwards says, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. So there's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful, like if someone were to describe that person to you, and having a sense of their beauty, having experienced it yourself. You see, for the ancient Corinthians, knowledge was all about the mind. But for Paul, and in the wisdom of God, knowing God is all about love. And he says this explicitly in verse 9. What God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says that knowing the wisdom of God is about loving God. True knowledge is an inner, deep, personal understanding We can read the Bible, we can listen to sermons, read all the right books and know a lot of stuff in our minds about God, but if we don't have a relationship and personal and communal experience with him, then we don't really know him. So this creates a problem for the Corinthians. The church was in disarray, there was division, there was disunity. And Paul says it's all because they had forgotten the wisdom of God and replaced it with limited human wisdom. To know God, we need to have intimacy with him. We need to have a personal knowledge of him. So well, how, do we get this in, how do we get this intimacy with the infinite God of the universe? How can we meet him at his level? And the answer is we can't. There is nothing in us that we have, nothing that we can do that can meet God at his level and enter into relationship with him. John Piper added a couple of new verses to the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and there's a a couple of lines in it. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom or powers to employ. But here's the thing. We can know God because he makes himself known to us. We can't ascend to God in his love. In his love, instead, he condescends. He comes down to our level. This is the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus is God stooping to our level. We could never reach God by ourselves, but he comes to us. The man, Jesus, was God come to earth to meet us fallen and broken at our level and raise us up to be in relationship with him. God became one of us, lived as one of us, died as one of us because he loves us. And in doing so, he breaks the, the, the human, the, he breaks the brokenness of the human condition by being raised from the dead. He came back to life and in doing so defeats death. And so that means the ultimate curse of human death is, is, is crushed. And if we believe this, we're saved. God meets us at our level. I thank God. God that he does because without him coming, we would be lost. This is how he makes himself known to us and allows us to know him. The only way to know God personally is to know that we are personally known by God. 
God expresses his love for us by coming to us. He made the first move. He doesn't sit around waiting for us to take an interest in him. And the amazing thing that this is available to all of us, we don't do anything. We just accept that Jesus died and rose again from the dead so that we can have a relationship with us, with, with God. And if that's news to you, please don't leave without uh, talking to me or to John or to Lucas or somebody about that because we want to invite you into the beauty of that relationship. Well, how is it then, so we move on in our passage, how is it then that if we believe in Jesus, if we believe his work was sufficient on the cross, that we can suddenly have a knowledge of the wisdom of God? And from, from verse 12 onwards, we start to see about the work of the Spirit. So from verse 12, now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the reason we can know the wisdom of God is because when we believe in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. So just to be clear, quick reminder, God is three persons. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. And it's only because God is three in one that we can know him. So when we trust in the work that Jesus has done in dying for us and being raised from the dead so that we can know the Father, when we believe that, we receive the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, we read, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So we as Christians are the home of the Holy Spirit. And according to our text, it's the Holy Spirit who allows us to understand all that God has given to us through Jesus. Sometimes Christians uh, maybe use language that, that isn't necessarily the most helpful when we talk about uh, the work of God here on earth. So we have God the Father who is sitting in heaven, orchestrating history at his pleasure. Okay, and we have God the Son. This is Jesus. We know him. He, he lived. He came to earth as a, as a baby. He lived. He died. And then he lived again. And then he ascended to be with the Father, reigning with him at the Father's right-hand side, okay? And when he's there, he's interceding for us. He, he is praying for us. And he's also waiting to return. He sat there waiting, waiting, waiting. He's waiting to come for the second and final time. At Advent, this is what we celebrate, that God came to earth, and we look forward to his second coming. Whenever, if you've ever heard anybody say the word Maranatha, it means come Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a right response in moments of, of distress and despair. Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. He's waiting to return. Then we have God, the Spirit. And maybe the idea of the Holy Spirit to you is scary. And maybe you grew up uh, kind of like I did with an understanding of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Bible. The Spirit has taken a vacation, and he's, um, he'll come back soon, maybe. But that's obviously not the case. The Spirit of God is alive and at work in the church. And later on in this series in 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at some specific works of the Spirit, some manifestations of the Spirit. Uh, but if, before we get there, we need to have a, a solid understanding of who the Spirit is and what he is up to. It can be daunting, but it needn't be. 
So the spirit is a he in the sense of being a person. Laura and I were watching Star Wars last night, and it just reminded me that the Holy Spirit is not the force, not this vague concept or interesting idea. When Jesus, when God the Son was talking about the Spirit, he said that it would be be better for, for he himself to leave earth and go to reign with his Father at the right hand side and for the helper to come and be with us. Jesus says that's a better idea than him staying. That would have been, I can't imagine what that would have been like for for the disciples to have watched their Savior being crucified, to have met him after he was rose from the dead, and to say that he's leaving, and it's a better idea for the Spirit to come in his place. At Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. In Pentecost, we celebrate uh, God in us. The Spirit dwells in us. So we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us if we're Christians. Paul is teaching us this here. He's teaching us about the work of the Spirit. If God were just one person, it would be unknowable and out of reach because there would be Father to send the Son to come, but there would be no Holy Spirit to make God's salvation plan known to us. So the Holy Spirit is able to make the wisdom of God, Christ crucified, known to us because he is God. And so he knows God, the Spirit knows the Father in the same way that you know your own thoughts. So when you trust in Jesus, you receive the Spirit, and the Spirit makes known to you the wisdom of God. He makes it possible for us to understand all that God's given. Now listen, this means that knowing God, understanding God, and appreciating God is all God's work from start to finish. Isn't that incredible? It's all a gift given by God's grace. Every single part of your salvation, even the ability to appreciate it, is God's gift to us. That took such a weight off my shoulders as I read this this week. None of my salvation rests on me. It's all God's work. That I even comprehend God is a gift of grace. If that's news to you, let that sink in deep. Remember, this letter is written... To an indivi- not to an individual, but to the church community. Partly because you can't know God fully outside of his community. And Paul describes how the Holy Spirit works in revealing the wisdom of God to us in the context of church community. So in verses 12 and 14, he uses six verbs to describe the work of the Spirit among the teachers and hearers in the community. So for the teachers... In the community, the Holy Spirit gives the ability to know, to declare, and to explain the wisdom of God. And for the hearers in the community, the Holy Spirit gives the ability to receive, understand, and appreciate the wisdom of God. And so when the church functions in this way, it leads us to grow in spiritual maturity. Now let's look at that issue of maturity. Uh, Let's not fall into the trap that the Corinthians fell into believing that to become more mature, you had to accrue more and more knowledge, and that having more and more knowledge would make you more savable, more likable in God's eyes, that, that, that it would like, place you in some sort of spiritual elite. That's absolutely not the case. Uh, the word mature is one of Paul's favorite words whenever you read through his letters. He made it a big goal of his ministry uh, to see the whole church grow into mature discipleship in Christ. In his letter to Philippians, in chapter 3, from verse 8 to 15, I think I have this one, Phil, on the slide. 
I can't read that, I don't my glasses. Paul says, no, that I have, not, that I, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature, mature, let those of you who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. To summarize, Paul's saying, I want to know Christ. I'm not there yet, but I'm moving towards that goal. I'm forgetting where I've been. I'm striving forwards. And anyone who is mature will think the same way, will have the same attitude. So in a word, for Paul to be mature is to know, I have not yet arrived, and I will press forward. So maturity, therefore, is a process. It's not a plateau. For Paul, maturity is to know that you haven't arrived, and you keep pressing forward. Maturity in this continual sense of knowing your needs of the, for the grace of Jesus. And in the upside-down world of the kingdom of God, in this sense, a new Christian can be mature, and folks who've been Christians for a while can be immature and get stuck in a rut. It's this counter-intuitive way of the kingdom, because maturity is a process and not a stage or a level we get to. And it's a messy process. It might feel like there's seasons where you're seeing great strides forward in your life with Jesus, that your striving forward is, is, is going well. Enjoy that. It's a beautiful time. And there's other times where it can feel like it's, you're not making great headway, like you're lost in fog or stuck in the same mess you can't get out of. Maturity is a process when the world says that this is how you mature by accruing more knowledge, the gospel says, no, that's not it. Paul doesn't have a simple gospel of the cross for babies and a different like wisdom gospel for the mature. The mystery Paul spoke of is not something additional to the saving message of Christ crucified. It is in Christ crucified that the wisdom of God is embodied. It consists rather in the more detailed unfolding of the divine purpose summed up in Christ crucified. I'll say that again. It consists in the more detailed unfolding of the divine purpose summed up in Christ crucified. We sometimes say it's like a diamond. If, I give you permission. If anybody has a diamond on their finger, you can look at it. Anybody sitting beside you, look at the diamond on the finger. Tilt it in new light. You got one, you get married, that's good. Uh, tilted, every time you see it in a new light, it's like it shines something new. There's like a new perspective to its beauty. This is maturity in the gospel. Constantly, constantly looking at the cross of the crucified Christ. So we never graduate from that. We don't move on from it. We only move into a more profound understanding of the cross. The problem was the Corinthian church had forgotten all this and it had led to division after division. 
They were arguing over who the best teacher was and forgotten that the cross is everything. Paul says, you guys need to know the wisdom of God. You need to remember the gospel of Christ crucified. But when we're immature, we don't realize our need for Jesus, and so we rely on human wisdom. This is why Paul must have been frustrated with the Corinthians, because they had access to God's. They had the Spirit dwelling in them, but they were relying on their own wisdom, not the wisdom of God revealed to them by the Spirit. So they weren't maturing in their faith. They were babies. How often do we do this? A lot. Too many. What are the ways in your life that you rely on your own wisdom and so stunt your own maturity in Christ? It's so easy to fall into this way of thinking. We can't understand the circumstances that we find ourselves in, and no matter how hard we try, we just can't figure it out. So we become disillusioned and bitter about whatever it is that's going on because it doesn't conform to the way we think things should be. As long as we keep thinking like this, we will be frustrated. But God has given us his spirit so we can understand and enjoy him. You don't have to go on being disillusioned. You don't have to stay frustrated and confused. God has given us a way of seeing the world and our circumstances so that we can see what he is doing. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The spiritual person just means um, those who have been animated by the Spirit, those who have the Holy Spirit. And the word, word, the natural person is those who don't have the Holy Spirit, those who have not accepted the work of Jesus. Uh, So the the, the word used for judge here means to discern or examine. Uh, So in other words, because of the Holy Spirit at work in us and in our community, we can discern what God is doing. We can see what he's up to. Uh, Andrew Elder um, was telling me of some friends of his and Healy's who uh, this week had to say goodbye to their wee nephew. And when you look at that tragic circumstance through human understanding, you can't make sense of why a little child would be sick and would die. It just doesn't make sense to human wisdom. Elder said he got a text from his mate, um, a reply, and it said... uh, that his nephew is with Jesus now and he's not suffering anymore. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's discerning circumstances through the mind of Christ. And this is what is open to us when we trust him. And what this verse implies is that when we do that, the world thinks we're not quite right. They don't understand it. They They just don't get it. This is what Paul means when he says the spiritual person is to be judged by nobody. People without the understanding of the Holy Spirit can't discern the wisdom of God. They can't see the bigger picture. And so the cross of Jesus seems foolish and our way of seeing the world is just weird to them. So what does all this look like then? What does it mean to know the wisdom of God? Paul finishes the section in verse 16 by saying, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. 
Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that we have like a supernatural, mind-blowing experience where we are now like Neo from the Matrix and see everything in code and can like discern every little thing. It's not that you all of a sudden know everything that God knows. That's not it at all. Paul means that when we trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the wisdom of God, we receive the Holy Spirit who gives us an understanding of of the wisdom of God, And so we take on the same way of thinking as Jesus. The Holy Spirit reconfigures the way we think so that we can know God and see the world with the same heart and attitude that he sees it. If we jump back again to Philippians, this time to chapter 2 from verses 5 to 8, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you see why the mind of Christ is so important when Paul is speaking to a divided church, what does the mind of Christ look like here? I see the words emptying yourself. Having the mind of Christ isn't centered on yourself. It's centered on those around you. It's centered on your brothers and sisters. It's having the mind of Christ is putting other people before yourself. It's about emptying yourself. It's about dying to yourself. It's about self-sacrifice for the good of those you love. In other words, having the mind of Christ is having a cruciform mind, a cross-shaped mind. And so we can say it in this way, to, to, to have the mind of Christ is to see the world through the lens of the gospel. To have the mind of Christ is to see the world through the lens of the gospel. And when we do this, we find deep peace. We find joy that's only possible through him. So our challenge this morning, are we just looking at Jesus and analyzing him? Is it just an an intellectual endeavor? Like, oh, I like what he says. That's nice. And we do nothing with it. Or do we know him? Are we trusting the wisdom of God or are we trying to get by on our own understanding? Because he is inviting us into so, so much more than human understanding. There's peace and joy and contentment available to us. God came to us so that we could know him. Jesus died and rose again so that we could be in relationship with him and he has given us his spirit so that we can understand him. We now know the, the God's beautiful salvation plan. In the light of the gospel, it makes sense. Don't be burdened by frustration and staleness and confusion anymore. Come to Jesus, trust his work, receive the Holy Spirit, and walk in the freedom that only he can give. We're going to take communion as a demonstration of the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the meal that celebrates that. It's the cross. It's the work of the cross. It's Christ's body broken for us. It's his blood shed for us. And we celebrate that every week to always remember the wisdom of God. 
because we so quickly forget it. Every other form of wisdom comes to our mind. We, we jump to those so quickly and forget the wisdom of God, the beautiful work of the cross. Um, if you're a Christian, you're so welcome to this table. Come, break the bread, dip it in the wine. Listen to those words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. If you're not a Christian, I would love to talk to you about Jesus. I would love to introduce you to a Savior, to, the, to a wisdom that defies the logic of this world. Come and talk to me. I'll be sitting right there. Um, would you stand with me? And we'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll come to the table and we'll sing. Father, we love you so much. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your work among us through the power of your spirit. Uh, we're so grateful for the cross and the foolishness that it, it seems to be. Uh, your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your thoughts are so far above our thoughts. Uh, we, we're so grateful that we now are aware of your beautiful plan of salvation. And may that continue to unfold in our lives. May we never move past the beauty of the cross. And may we see it in new and fresh ways. Lord, reveal it to us in new and fresh ways. In Jesus' name, amen.